But I think within the Democratic Party, there is some some uncertainty about should we should we, we we say we call out these people that this is important to us. But when it's one of our own, it's a little bit more of a struggle because that person is still moving forward some of the progressive policies of the party. The Republican Party doesn't have that problem, though. They don't have this kind of hypocritical notions of having to call out the powerful men in their party because they're not advocating for those things to begin with. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Sexual harassment and inappropriate conduct has become all too familiar of a story in modern-day politics. In recent years, allegations against politicians have straddled party lines with sexual misconduct claims made against political giants. In just the last few years, high-profile accusations have been leveled at Al Franken, Brett Kavanaugh, Donald Trump, Roy Moore, Joe Biden, and Matt Gates, and most recently, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who has announced he will step down effective August 24th after multiple women came forward alleging sexual misconduct and inappropriate behavior by the governor. He has denied all allegations. So what do these misconduct allegations against high-power political figures have impact on some but not others? And what can we do as a society to eliminate this behavior? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll take a look at sexual harassment and the resignation of Governor Cuomo. We'll discuss sexual harassment in politics, where the pendulum falls when it comes to sexual harassment, holding perpetrators accountable over these claims, and what's being done to combat sexual misconduct. And to do that, we have Professor Rebecca Ortiz, PhD, from the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. Dr. Ortiz conducts research in health communications, social marketing, and entertainment media effects. She has managed and consulted on a number of health communication campaigns and projects focused primarily on sexual health issues such as sexual assault prevention, HPV vaccination, and teen pregnancy prevention. She recently blogged about sexual harassment in politics in a blog post titled New Research, How Political Bias Impacts Believing Sexual Assault Victims. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ortiz. Thank you so much for having me. This is kind of a very fine point on a big subject, but can you kind of describe a little bit about your research as we get started as a kind of framework for our discussion? Sure. Uh, I'm going to give a little bit of background information. So what I will talk about when I talk about my research makes a little more sense. First, we have to understand this concept of social identity and um, how our identity is made up and influenced by our membership in social groups. And I'll explain why this is all relevant here in just a second, but just kind of lay this foundation. What we find is that our identities are made up of our membership in social groups. It can be things like gender, race, um, age, and it could even be things like um, our, our fanship for sports teams or the college that we went to. And one of the identities that we see really um, being emphasized and, and of great importance right now is one's political identity. And so whether we belong to or we identify with a particular political party can influence how we see things that happen to people from our parties. 
So uh, the Me Too movement started um, about four or five years ago now, and around that time period, we saw a lot of conversation around sexual assault and sexual harassment. And many powerful men were being called out for the assault and and harassment uh, allegations against them. We saw at the time, probably one of the biggest ones was then-candidate Donald Trump being um, accused of sexual assault. And so I've been looking at sexual consent and sexual assault and how people make sense of this, particularly in terms of how they see it represented in news and entertainment media. And so I was really interested in at the time was, well, how, and I noticed this kind of anecdotally first, was how people were perceiving sexual assault allegations based on who was accused and what political party they aligned with and whether that political party aligned with somebody's own party or the opposing party. And what we see is with social identity, when somebody is accused of bad behaviors that is part of our group, our social group, so somebody like us, we can become defensive and we can engage in what's called this social identity threat, where we can feel like our own identities are threatened when somebody like us is accused of bad behavior. Is that internalization? Yeah. So what we can do is we'll often find that people will become defensive when somebody similar to them is accused of these bad behaviors, in this case, sexual assault. And so we will be less likely to believe these allegations and more likely to place blame on the victim. And so that's what I was really looking at. Let me interrupt for a second and talk about Trump's situation. There has been some speculation that the Republicans were willing to overlook his uh, infidelities and other issues because they had an agenda that he was willing to follow. That's right. And what's interesting from my research is that we actually see some of this willingness to place responsibility and blame on a victim, regardless of whether it's Republicans or Democrats. It just depends on who the candidate is or the political uh, leader is that's being accused. With that said, Democrats are much more likely to to call out their powerful men in these cases than Republicans are. And I found this to be consistent in my research, that this victim blaming, this, this willingness to place responsibility or partial responsibility on the victim is much higher among Republicans than it is Democrats and much higher among men than it is women. But that when when you start to take into the strength of somebody's political identity, you can actually see that that both Democrats and Republicans do have the ability to engage in this victim blaming when it's a candidate of their own party. How is it that they justify ignoring it? <laughs> I think that's a that's a great question. I the short answer here, and I want to say there's still a lot to be explored in this area. Part of it is really just protecting one's ego. So like I said before, if somebody like me or like, you know, like yourself is accused of bad behavior, it can feel like a reflection on yourself. And so you don't want to believe that you could do a behavior like that. So it's what's called an implicit and often unconscious bias where we will blame external factors, in this case, the victim more than we will blame the person that's like us because really we're protecting our own ego. How do you explain the the kind of, I'm going to call it a predilection, I'm not really sure what else to call it, but we had Al Franken resign after a little bit of guff and then we had Andrew Cuomo recently resign after he made some initial denials. But yet 
Trump was got very similar allegations. Kavanaugh had similar, as did Matt Gates. Mm-hmm. So how is it that why are powerful Democratic men more willing to resign than powerful Republican men? The, again, probably the easiest answer here, though, and I think it is a bit more complex, the easier answer here is that the Democratic Party has really stood behind victims' rights and advocating for sexual assault victims. It's the party that is known to, and I'm going to put this in quotes, to to be progressive around, quote unquote, women's issues. Sexual assault is not just a women's issue, but it is something that is 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 largely considered violence against women. So we see that the Democratic Party is already advocating for a lot of progressive ideas around advocating for victims. The Republicans are not doing that. So I think the Democrats feel much more of a need to not stand in that hypocritical space. So they feel like they feel the need to call out when powerful men are accused of this. Whereas the Republican or sort of the the conservative side of the aisle, they're not advocating for those same things. So there's not as much of a hypocrisy to not call out the men in the party. And how is it that the Republicans just can simply listen to other Republicans instead of listening to the Democrat criticism of them? Well, that's that's where you can get into. I think some of it is where we start to see some of the masculinity that exists within the Republican Party is this idea of not backing down. And when you are accused of something that you stand your ground. And so in a way, calling out powerful men is something that Democrats do. And so when we see this us versus them mentality in political affiliation in the United States, the Republicans may feel even less wanting to to call out their men because that's how they see something that the opposite party does. It's that simple. It's do you it, do you think that do you think they have where does the shame emotion if that's an emotion where where does shame play into this? Do you mean shame I, well, well I think you know like Como resigned and I, mm-hmm. I have the sense that some of that was because he was ashamed of his behavior. I mean, from a lawyer's standpoint, you know, I look at this and say to myself, wait a second, these people are resigning without due process. There's been no hearing. There's been no mm. determination. You know, there's been just these allegations. Not to say that the allegations aren't right, but from a legal standpoint, that's what done without due process. Well, that's true. That's absolutely true. But I think in Cuomo's case, I don't feel that there was much shame. This was in terms of internally, at least. I don't think that when he came out with his video, um, and, and I think some people might have called it an apology video, but it, it clearly wasn't an apology video. It was an uh, I'm explanation Italian. video. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm Italian. Italian. This is how we are. It, well, and he engaged in a lot of the common misdirects that we often see, which is, if you, if you notice, he, he mentioned his daughters a couple of times as if having daughters means that you couldn't possibly engage in sexual harassment. We saw him trying to call out him trying to help the, the one woman who had, who had disclosed that she had a sexual assault. He was, re- he was really not trying to engage in any true apologies. I think what ended up happening is there was so much pressure for him to resign that he, regardless of due process or legalities, it was not in his best interest to stay in the role because his party was calling him out for that. Is it that Democrats will acknowledge the fact that, you know, it's better for politics and for the state in this instance to just get on with the governance of the of the state rather than be embroiled in these allegations? And is that a, what does that play in the resignation process? That's a great question. And I think it's a it's one that the Democratic Party has really struggled with. 
is that's a party that says we stand with sexual assault victims, that we advocate for victims' rights, but that also has a, you know, when Democratic politicians are accused of this, this is somebody of their party that's also moving other progressive things within the party forward. So um, if you, I don't know if you saw, but there was a poll that came out and, you know, one poll should not be everything, but it at least was a bit indicative, is we saw that Democratic, registered Democrats were polled and we saw an almost 50-50 split in whether like about 52% said that he should resign. And it was something like 7% were unsure, but then the rest, so 40 some percent, felt that he shouldn't resign. So I think within the Democratic Party, there is some, some uncertainty about should we, should we, we say we call out these people that this is important to us, but when it's one of our own, it's a little bit more of a struggle because that person is still moving forward some of the progressive policies of the party. The Republican Party doesn't have that problem, though. They don't have this kind of hypocritical notions of having to call out the powerful men in their party because they're not advocating for those things to begin with. Let's look at it from the women's perspective. Mm. What, and particularly the victim, what is the victim going through and how does this victim blaming affect the, the people that are making these allegations, as well as the people surrounding them and then the broader society of women who think, should I report or should I not? That, yeah, wow. Um, this is probably the thing that should be talked about the most, really, which is what kind of effect does news coverage of this, does the response to this, even responses on social media have on people who are victims. And 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 let's be clear, this is a, a, an issue that we see as violence against women, but there are male victims as well. And these same these same um, conversations around victim blaming can influence male victims as well. But we can focus, we can focus specifically on female victims since that was the case here. Absolutely, when we see that there's this sort of back and forth about should he resign, shouldn't he resign, or should we call this candidate out or this politician out or not, it will obviously be internalized by those who have been victimized to question whether they want to come forward with their story because the public discourse is always around what she did or what she shouldn't have done or- Or why did she take so long? Right, exactly. Or yeah, why didn't she come forward? And of course the answer should be, well, look at the response. This is why she took so long to come forward or didn't come forward at all. But there's always this this discourse of victim blaming that happening happens that makes it difficult for victims to come forward. You know, and I, I wanted to talk about your research because you mentioned it as you gave the background facts and we started with the conversation, but- you know, you have in your research found that the stronger the partisan identity of Republicans and, or Democrats, mm-hmm. the more likely they were to engage in victim-blaming attitudes. And you, you surmise that that's somewhat due to the ego and the protection of the self. But is uh, how do we engage in any kind of self-discovery or, you know, society shaming of the, the perpetrator? Well, how do we flip this on its head? <laughs> that's the big question is, I mean, that's one of the questions sometimes in, in scientific discovery, you answer a question and you go, well, what the heck do I do with this information? What exactly is the next step? Because 
it's it's fine to stay in sort of theory space, which uh, academics we often do is we we like to we like to answer these questions. But then there's there's the application of what do we do with this information, and I think this is actually something that's happening that's beyond sexual assault allegations, which is there's a whole literature that's really discovering how bias, implicit and unconscious bias, plays a role in how we perceive a variety of issues. Any and in any situation where there is some sort of victim or somebody that has been um, that has experienced something out of their control. And I, I'll be honest with you, I don't have the answer, but I think the more we understand human psychology around how we perceive things like allegations, the better we can be to figure out how do we have conversations with others to try to mitigate some of those biases. So I don't have the answer for you immediately, but I think we're moving in the right direction by trying to understand these things. It's an ongoing discussion. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, Bill Cosby. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, here we have a man who was alleged to have committed sexual harassment in some of the worst ways, mm-hmm. criminal punishment, and now is out and people are supporting him. How does that play into this conversation? I think it's it's the exact same conversation. There's some reason why some people are still supporting him. And I would argue that that reason is internal in some way. There's some, either it might be related to, to for, for men, fear of being accused of sexual assault and not wanting to, to support victims because of that fear of being accused of it. Or it might be some connection that you had with Bill Cosby as a youth or it might be race related that you see, you know, there was this this black man who rose um, to prominence and 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 gave um, visibility to to uh, the black community. So I I believe that there's something happening in in all of us that makes us not want to believe certain things. And so it really does still come down to that defensive attribution where we don't want it to be true. And so, therefore, we convince ourselves it not to be true. Though I think at this point, you're going to find a much smaller percentage of people who do not believe those allegations about, against Bill Cosby true, especially when they were so horrific. You know, I think I consider myself to be somewhat well-read. And I think one of the surprising revelations to me over time has been the very wide variety of views that are expressed on the internet and news sources and, you know, some claiming to be news sources that we would traditionally not consider to be news sources. What role does news coverage play in victim blaming as well as this kind of the sexual harassment arena with politics? And then how do these extremes play into it? Because obviously we have some, you know, we have in cells on one side that are expressing, you know, complete and disdain for you know, complete misogynist. And then we have the, you know, Me Too movement on the other side that is propounding another set of, you know, news and perspective and coverage. How do we marry all this together and understand what's really happening? I'm so glad you asked that question because I just conducted a study that looks a little bit at what you're you're getting at in terms of source. It's not going to answer all of your questions, but it's going to give a little bit of a direction. So what I did is I ran an experiment looking to see, are we more willing to blame somebody from the opposing party than our party? So again, this is about political party in this case. 
And then I, so, so I created a fictitious news story and people were either assigned to read this news story, which was about an allegation made against a fictitious political candidate. And the candidate was either Republican or Democrat. And that either aligned or didn't align with your own political party. And then I manipulated what the source was. So the source then aligned was of your own political party or was of the opposing party. And what I wanted to look at is see to see in which case do you find the source, the, the information and the source least credible, least believable. And what I found is that when the story was reporting on the allegations of a political candidate accused of sexual assault from your own party and the source was of the opposing party, that was the only time that people were less likely to believe that the source was credible. The opposite was not true, meaning that if the source was of your own party reporting on the opposing party, you didn't see that as least credible. So in a nutshell, let me explain that a little bit easier. You believe that the other side could not possibly accurately, unbiasedly report on a sexual assault allegation when it's somebody from your party. But you believe your party can report on the allegation of the opposing party. So again, back to this, we believe the sources that we trust and that we think can report things based upon what our initial beliefs and our initial identities are. I hope that makes sense. Right, because we choose those sources based on our own beliefs because they align with our beliefs. Absolutely. I mean, it's the classic confirmation bias. It's an amazing process to kind of analyze and think about. Is there any way around this? There's a lot of people doing a lot of work around this because that is obviously the big issue and the big topic, which is misinformation, which is the sort of echo chambers that we see, which there's some research to suggest the echo chambers are not always as deep as we think. But I think we've all been on YouTube where we've clicked on some random video that wasn't necessarily something that we typically watch. And then all of a sudden, it is suggesting to us all these kind of extreme ideas. And we were like, hey, I just wanted to, you know, learn about this one thing. And now you're exposing me to this really outlandish extreme information. So we know that that is happening. And the best recourse we have right now is to try to diversify the news. But there's, there's the challenge. Do we force it on the consumer to do or do we force it on the algorithms, the news organizations to diversify it for us? I think that's the ongoing discussion right now. And one of the surprising things that perhaps not too surprising, I think if you're cynical about it, <laughs> as we've covered several times on this podcast, there are obviously organizations out there who seed the media with perspective stories and opinions in order to influence how the discussion turns. Yeah, it's really easy to make people believe things they already believe and it's or that they already kind of have a hunch or a feeling for. So all you have to do is really kind of tap into those beliefs and then you can pull people deeper down the rabbit hole into other beliefs. And there's a lot of monetary value in that. There's a lot of potential for yeah, extremist thinking, people being pulled into more extremist views. And we're seeing that, obviously. We're seeing that there are people who, for whatever reason, depending on the group, are feeling disenfranchised, feeling marginalized. And so they're looking for, back to kind of full circle, looking for identity, looking for connection. And so when they can find 
connection through some of these initial beliefs, it, it, it can lead to harmful effects because they start to believe things that are very extreme. And it almost seems in a way that the extreme perspectives have taken over the centrist. You know, it, it can seem like that. And whether it's true, I think the, the, the problem that we have is it's in terms of studying this is that it can be really hard to study this on the individual level. So because algorithms are what they are on, on YouTube or Apple News or whatever it is that you're using to get your, your, your information, it's hard to see what each individual person is seeing and what they're reading and what they're experiencing because we don't have centralized places for news anymore. At least, you know, we don't have like the big three networks and that kind of thing that are uh, exposing most of the population to information. So it can be hard to research this. And it kind of reminds me of a very short clip that I saw on the news where a gentleman was lamenting the fact that he hadn't gotten a vaccine. A little off topic here, but basically his response was, well, we're a good conservative family, so we didn't get the vaccine. Mm -hmm. More confirmation bias. Right. And, And to that person, that is in alignment with their beliefs. Whereas what I always think is kind of interesting is people on the extreme ends have so much more in common than they realize because they're they're both and even people who are sort of, you know, mid center, but kind of still aligning to one side or the other. If we're thinking about it in terms of conservative and liberal, we actually have way more in common in that we think we're right. (laughs) We think that our beliefs are the right way. And those people over there are crazy. So if we can start to understand from the individual's perspective why they think they're right, then I think we can have a deeper conversation than just defensiveness and, and bias, defensive biases, where we just assume that whatever they think is wrong with, because we haven't taken time to really understand why they think the way they do. There's also been expressed a bias against people like you and me who have a little bit more education that we become liberal over time with the perspectives that are offered in universities. What role does education, in particular critical thinking and formative years, play into this? How does that sit all under? Well, it, majorly. It definitely, definitely influences it. And we can, we can see that, at least demographically. We can see that the you know, differences in liberals being more educated, conservatives um, having less formal education, at least. So we see some of that. What's interesting is I actually can think back to a study I did, and, and, and we, we didn't actually publish this. We presented it at a conference, though. We found that the, we were doing a survey with college students about their understanding of Obamacare and whether, and we actually manipulated whether they saw it listed as Obamacare or as, um, as the Patient Protection Act, you know, the, the official label. We found that depending on what their affiliation was, they actually saw Obamacare as much worse. Like, so if they were Republican, they found Obamacare much worse than, than the other, even though it was the, they're the exact same thing. They're just labeled differently. And then we also looked and we found that, well, what was the most influential factor on why they identified as Republican or Democrat? And what we were able to discover, it was that what are their parents' affiliation? What is the party that their parents align with? And it was, I mean, it was a huge number. There was, I can't remember the numbers now, but it was much more likely a, a, a college student who identifies as Republican, their parents also identified. Almost so a direct correlation. It was, it was very strong. <laughs> it was very strong. It was actually the, we had a number of things that we measured and it was the, the most significant indicator of what that party affiliation was. 
I kind of feel like we're talking about Jimmy Kimmel's Lie TV, where he interviews the, <laughs> the, the person on the street and creates a lie, and then uh, people start espousing their beliefs about the lie. Yeah, and that's also called the illusory um, truth effect. I think I think I'm saying that right, um, or, or the tr- uh, truth by repetition effect. I think what it is is that, it, and this is where false news becomes problematic. Is that the more you say a lie, the more people start to believe it to be true. Not necessarily because they actually believe it to be true, but because they've heard it so many times and it, and it's stuck in our head. So we have to be careful about the lies that we spread because they can become quote unquote truths to us. Well, and to go off topic even a little bit further, it, it reminds me of the quality of political advertising that we see around election time. All we get are people's names. We don't get position papers, you know, or any kind of understanding. You drive down the street and you're assaulted with nothing but someone's name running for this position. And then the party that they're affiliated with, right? So there's really, I would argue, two things that influence, you know, what bubble, or depending on how you're voting, but let's just say what bubble you're filling out in in the, the ballot box, it's what's your party, and then what's the name that you recognize. And that name is usually the name that is, Ben, you're right, like you said, has been advertised the most, has been seen the most. Donald Trump, I think, a huge... Well, we know this. A huge reason why he was elected, or I should say one of the reasons, is because of brand recognition. Right. Yeah, I, I have told the story before about voting in Iowa in a one-room schoolhouse when I lived there going to law school. The poll takers there handed me my ballot and said, we got it all filled out for you. You were <laughs> going to vote Republican, weren't you? <laughs> no, yeah. give, me a, give me a blank one. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Ortiz, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so I'd like to take this opportunity now to invite you to share your final thoughts as well as your contact information for our listeners. Absolutely. Final thoughts here is for any listeners that are you know, struggling whenever they hear these sexual assault allegations is to really consider the full context of why you might be feeling the way you're feeling. So if you immediately start to think, well, you know, maybe this person shouldn't, this person should have been wearing this or drinking this or that kind of stuff. Think a little bit deeply about why do I feel that way? What is it that might be making me feel defensive and feel threatened? And so that I'm not actually giving these allegations the true consideration that they deserve because we are all biased. We are all looking to protect our egos and we're not, we're human for that. So we just got to be careful and be more conscious of it. I'm continuing to do some of this research. This is really actually pretty exploratory research at this point. So if anyone is interested in reaching out to me, they're more than welcome to. You can uh, reach me at, at my email, which is R-O-R-T-I-Z-0-9 at S-Y-R.edu. And you can also just pop my name into Google, Rebecca Ortiz, Syracuse University, and you'll find a bunch of other information about me. Oh, great. Well, to wrap up, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank our guest, Professor Rebecca Ortiz, PhD, for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Great. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, if you've liked what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.